Thank you for listening to the official podcast of Everyday Church. We are a body of believers in Oklahoma City with the mission to live out our faith on a daily basis. Let's listen in as we hear a powerful message from God's Word. Good morning. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys are doing well this morning. Man, I'm excited to be up here to preach God's Word. I've titled this message today, A Faith Worth Having. Now, a faith worth having is necessary in a culture without saving faith. And I wanted to specifically preach on this text today because of what it's done in my own life. You know, years ago, before the Lord called me into ministry, I was struggling with my faith. There was so many things that I didn't know about God. And one of those things was that I was indirectly adding to what Scripture said. I was building a resume of self-righteousness that I was prepared to actually give to God when I met him. But in the back of my mind and in my heart, I knew that it was only Christ that saved me, yet I was guilty of adding to the work of Christ. And it wasn't until later when I dealt with false teaching in the church and had some better teaching that I actually saw that I didn't have a faith that was worth having. But by the grace of God, I'm here today. And he pointed out the error that I had in my life. He showed me the most glorious truth, I think, that any one of us can ever know, is that grace only comes from faith alone. So I want us to specifically talk through this text today and see what a faith worth having actually looks like. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 11. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I must self have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I have, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because it's a passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and being found in him, not of the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and I may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. For those taking notes this morning, my first point is a faith worth having worships God in the proper way. Now Paul begins this text with sort of a transition, and the concept and the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and joy should be the response of what Paul is about to tell them. 
You know, Christians are the most forgetful people I know. I forget a lot of things about the glorious truth of the gospel. And the people of Philippi needed to be reminded of this good news. And I think an understanding of truth for us as Christians is important because when false teaching creeps in, we have the truth to combat it. Amen? In verse 2, Paul warns the people of Philippi of the false teachers who are attempting to add works to salvation. Now, this group is actually known as the Judaizers, and they would often creep into the church and tell a lot of people that they had to add to the gospel in order to be saved. Paul lists three different things in verse 2. One, he calls them dogs. Now, the dogs that Paul is talking about is not your cute, fluffy animal at home, right? He's talking to wild dogs, ones who would scour the streets to look for food. And it's funny that Paul would use that argumentation against them because they like to use it against the Gentiles. In terms of evildoers, they were the ones that would require people to follow the law in order to be saved. You had to do everything perfectly in order to be saved. And finally, they would require circumcision in order to be saved. See, they were seeing circumcision as a spiritual act, but Paul says in this text that they were actually just mutilating themselves. The fact is that none of these things could save the people or lead them to have proper worship. Did you know that works of the flesh will not prompt God to save you? But they were requiring all these things. Matthew 23, 15 explains what they actually were doing. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel along the sea and land and make a single proselyte, and when he has become a proselyte, you make him twice as much the child of hell as yourselves. Today, this is no different than people inside and outside the church. They're adding to the gospel, saying that you have to do this in order to have proper worship of God or to be saved. And this is not true. Thankfully, Paul gives us a sort of an antidote in the next verse. He says, Paul, we are the circumcision. Now, in Romans 2, 28 and 29, it says, For no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from God, but from man. For those who are taking notes, 1A would be true believers are circumcised by the heart. Did you know a believer's heart is changed not by anything they do in the flesh, but it's changed by Christ when they're saved? The Judaizers of the day were seeking to worship God outwardly, but yet they were not changed inwardly. And we can't truly worship God unless we've actually been changed by him. We must be changed by the heart. A second subpoint is true believers worship by the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, And I will put my spirit within you, and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel is promising us a better covenant that is to come. 
God is actually going to give us his spirit to his people. We can't have proper worship of God unless we have his spirit. Finally, he says, glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. The third sub-point is true believers worship for the glory of God. That made my daughter excited. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. A believer's aim is to worship God fully because of who he is. Can you see the difference between the two parallels? One is clearly based on works, things that you do. The other is clearly based on faith, something that God does in you when you are saved. Paul is reminding them, despite the opposition that they may have, that they have new hearts, a new spirit, and a new perspective, a proper perspective, a confidence that doesn't rely in anything that they have done, but relies strictly on Christ. And the same truth applies for us today, right? No matter what comes into the church and they say that you need to do, we know that we can only do those things if we are actually changed by God. Uh, The second point I have this morning is a faith worth having is not based on works. And while I touched on this earlier, Paul is actually going to go more in depth in this text why this is actually true. But he's doing so with sort of a twist. He's building a resume about himself to present to the people of Philippi, and look how he does it. He starts off by saying that if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have more. So that as Judaizers were adding to the gospel, Paul says, look what I already have in my life. Look what I've already done. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Unlike the Judaizers who had often become circumcised later on in life, Paul was circumcised on the proper way. Leviticus 12.3 says, And on the eighth day of the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Paul, what did he just do? He one-upped the Judaizers, right? He one-upped them. In the next verse, he says that he was of the people of Israel. Paul was a true descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So not every Christian that comes to faith in Christ is Jewish, right? God calls people from all over to all over the world to himself. But Paul was a true Jew. Again, his resume looks pretty good. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the tribe of Benjamin was unique for several different reasons. One, it came from Rachel, who, if you know your Bible well, was Jacob's favorite wife. And also, the tribe of Benjamin remained faithful to the people of Israel in the Davidic dynasty, even though they had their flaws. So I I didn't know if you knew this, but at the time, most Jews actually didn't know what tribe they came from. Yet Paul knew, and yet had a more impressive resume. He was not only a Jew, but he was a Benjamite. Not only was he that, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. At most of the time, Jews were known as Hellenistic Jews, which means that they would borrow some aspects from Greek some aspects from Roman culture, including the language and certain customs. Now, most of them would speak Aramaic and not be schooled in Hebrew, but this wasn't the case for Paul. He was raised in a Jewish home, had a Jewish lifestyle, followed the Jewish 
customs, even while living in a pagan society. Man, this resume is looking better and better by the moment, isn't it, when it comes to the Judaizers. He was a Pharisee and one that followed the law. Now, if you know anything about Pharisees, they were a religious sect that focused on the written law. There was over 600 laws that the people had to follow. That's quite a bit. I have a hard time following one. And they claimed to be separate and distinct from everyone else because they were so righteous. And Paul was one of them, which in turn added to his own self-righteousness. It continues on to say he was a that he had zeal and a persecutor of the church. Paul was a zealous man, so much so, if you know your Bible well, that he would kill Christians and arrest those who opposed Judaism. The story of Stephen is just one of these examples. Now, it was Paul's goal to kill Christians. And yet, he thought this zeal added to his resume. Finally, he closes out with, I think, one of the most important statements. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. No one could actually accuse Paul of breaking the law. He was outwardly pure. He actually walked the walk of the Jews. His resume is impressive. No one could beat it. No Judaizer could even come close. But today, that makes you think of all the different things that people are building their own resumes on, right? We had Paul's awesome resume, but what's yours? So many people try to add different things in order to be saved. I'll give you an example of a few, but trust me, it's not limited to this. Baptism. How many people in here have heard, I'm saved because I've been baptized? Family history. I grew up in church. My grandfather was a pastor. His grandfather was a pastor. Surely this makes me a Christian, right? Church service. I serve every single week faithfully. God's going to see that and count me as righteous. Church attendance. I've heard of people getting plaques for their Sunday school attendance. And some would say, it's because I'm at church all the time that I am saved. Giving. Man, did you know how much money I gave to the church this year? That surely is going to save me. God's going to see all the generosity that I've done, and he's going to count me as righteous. Certain spiritual gifts. You may have the gift of teaching, serving, mercy, gift of tongues, and all these various gifts that you are counting on to save you. And finally, their own righteousness. Many people will come to you and say, man, look how good I am. I'm a good person. I do all these good things. And I'm definitely better than this guy up here. And that may be true. I'm probably the worst, most unqualified person to be preaching to you. But... They're counting their own righteousness as a way that could save them. What I'm telling you today is don't be like pre-conversion Paul who was caught up in works because that is not a faith worth having. Which brings me to my third point. 
A faith worth having sees Christ as its greatest treasure. Verse 7 says, But whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, not of the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Man, that's powerful. And I think it perfectly sums up what it looks like to truly be saved. This is the heart of a saved person. This is a heart of a new Paul. Remember, we looked at his life all the way from circumcision to conversion. That was years upon years, and he counted all that as his righteousness. But yet, all the advantages that he had as a Jew, when he was saved, he counted it all as a loss. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, grace leads a man to renounce his most prized and boasted privileges for Jesus' sake. The resume he was building was surely impressive, but he was holding on now to a better and right resume, the the resume of Jesus Christ, the one who was actually pure in all ways, the one who did not sin, the one who lived a life that you and I and everyone in this room could never live. And not only that, he went willingly to the cross to die for his children, willingly, But the good thing about it is, is he's not dead, right? He rose from the dead. He walked on this earth 30 days after his resurrection, and he ascended, and he's at the right hand of God as we speak. This is the resume we want. I love this. Paul replaced the value system that he once had, and he placed it in the one who actually had true value, Christ. I want you to see this. Don't miss this today. Paul took everything that he taught and everything that he thought justified himself before God and said it's worth far less than Christ. We may do hundreds, maybe even thousand things in the name of God and it still doesn't compare to the one man, Christ Jesus. It doesn't even come close. His mindset Mindset ended up being that all those advantages that he had in this life ended up being disadvantages when he truly found who Christ was. In verse 8, he builds on this argument, though. He doesn't stop there. He repeats the idea that he previously ate out, but adds to it. And look what he adds to it. It's amazing. He says, now he adds everything, Right? The amazing accomplishments that Paul had in this life, he writes at the bottom of his resume, everything. I'm sure Paul had way more accomplishments than he said. But just to sum it up, he says everything. I think this is so powerful because the Judaizers had no counter to that point. right? They couldn't say, hey, Paul said this, but let me add a couple more things in order for you to be saved. That is not what they could do. I think Paul makes the statement so clear that he truly counted everything as a loss. Not just his accomplishments listed, but everything. 
Paul, who was the most self-righteous man, was no longer holding on to any self-righteousness. Because of what? Well, the text says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Again, he magnifies what he says in verse 7, but he adds a few more things. See, he valued Christ over all things. He put Christ into a league of its own. He's seen Christ as his greatest treasure. He now had something he didn't have before. He had a personal and intimate relationship with the one who created all things. Total transformation. But I don't want you to miss what he now called Christ. He called him Lord. It's amazing. This is astonishing and true radical transformation who was lost and dead in his sins to now call Jesus Christ who he properly is, and that is Lord. Not only just the Lord, but my Lord. Man, Charles Spurgeon said it so well. He said, how delicious is the apostle's next word, my Lord. Not merely the Lord, but my Lord. His knowledge was an appropriate knowledge. He knew the Redeemer as anointed for him as saving him, as Lord over all for him, and now as Lord to him. The honey of this sentence lies in the word my. To me, this is one of the sweetest words that can possibly use by a mortal lip. The knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see then how truly, fully, practically, and personally he knew the Lord Jesus. Do you remember how Thomas cried in ecstasy, my Lord and my God. Paul, by faith, now says, Jesus is my Lord. Man, Spurgeon's words are true, right? If Jesus isn't your Lord today, you're not truly saved. Jesus must be your Lord in order for you to be saved. And you know, Paul could have stopped here, but he didn't. He adds something else to the text. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Your Bible translation might say something different than rubbish. It may say something like garbage like the NIV does. But I actually don't think it gives it justice to what it actually means. The Greek for that word rubbish is actually dung. It's bodily fluids. Worthless compared to Christ. See, Paul had a proper perspective on who Christ was now compared to his work. He thought it was done, right? But guess what? He gained Christ. He gained something greater. I wrote it down like this. Christians should be willing to give up all earthly standing if it means gaining Christ. Don't hold on to anything else besides Christ. He's more valuable than anything. And I think this is important to note that when we're actually saved, it's not just a get out of hell free card. We actually get a relationship with God. Who is the greatest treasure? I think verses seven and eight should just be screamed out for every Christian that Christ is greater. Amen? Christ is greater. And verse 9 shows us what this actually looks like. 
and being found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that, be, that depends on faith. I love it. This resume that was full of self-righteousness is now gone, and the new resume says faith in Christ. Do you know when the Lord convicts someone and he brings the spirit upon them and they repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ, something amazing actually happens? Christ's righteousness, the one who is the only one is, that is righteous, faith, or his righteousness, is imputed to you. And this doesn't take any work of the law. It only comes through faith in Christ. And that righteousness from God depends on faith. I love it. Pre-conversion, Paul says, saved by works. Post-conversion, Paul says, saved by faith. Pre-conversion, Luke says, saved by works. Pre-post-conversion, Luke, saved by faith. This is so good. One man said it like this. Real Christianity keeps our confidence in the column singular. Christ alone saves. False teaching focuses on the flesh, on what we actually do. And it inevitably minimizes our confidence in what Christ has already done. That's good. Faith in Christ doesn't minimize the work of Christ, it maximizing it. Our resume isn't my works plus Christ. It's Christ plus nothing else. My old pastor would say Christ plus nothing equals everything. In verse 10, we see Paul say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul wanted to know Christ in a deeper way. He wanted to experience the power of the resurrection in his own life. And the truth of the matter is, he did once Christ saved him. And I'll come back to the resurrection in a moment, but I want to quickly move on to what it says about suffering. For those taking notes, 3A was, we see Christ as our greatest treasure by faith. 3B, we see Christ as our greatest treasure in suffering. Suffering is not often the easiest thing to see Christ in, but it's often when he or it's often where he reveals himself the most. Paul had a share of sufferings. 2 Corinthians 11:23 through 28 says, "I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death." Five times I've received the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and in cold exposure, and apart from other things, there were daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul suffered even greater than this. And these are just a few of them. But yet, he did it knowing that in it would advance the gospel and change others. Some of you in this room know Megan and I well. Some of you don't. 
back in Memorial Day in 2019, we found out that we lost the twin to Isabella. It was a hard, hard moment. We had all this hope on what it would be like to raise twin girls and the joy that it would come. But God had a different plan for us. And yet, in the suffering, God drew me closer to him. And why it still hurts to this day, obviously you can see. God has used it to advance the gospel. Shortly after that happened, I was able to share the gospel with someone who had lost a child in the womb. And why I don't know where he is to this day, I could see it in his face. That man, what I had said, convicted him. And I hope the Lord has saved him through that. Often we don't see suffering as a treasure, but God uses it for his glory. And he uses it to change others. The third and final sub-point I have today is we see Christ as our greatest treasure in the resurrection. This life isn't it. There is so much more than this temporary life. This doesn't minimize the importance of life, but I think it maximizes the importance of the resurrection. Paul was forward-focused and ready for that day. Even though this text is most likely referring to believers and their future resurrection, every single person here is going to be judged on that day. Everyone here. And it's either going to be one of two ways. God is going to judge you rightly for all your works that you've done in this life, or he's going to judge you on based whether or not you had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you see Christ as your greatest treasure, or are you hoping God looks at you for your works and says, well done? I think we know the answer after today. In closing, I want to go back to the title of this message, Do You Have a Faith? worth having? Do you worship God in the proper way? Right? Is your heart, is your spirit, and your attitude in the place God wants them to be? Or do you need to make a change today? Are you basing your salvation on human works? Are you indirectly adding them to salvation like I was doing? Don't overlook these questions. Finally, do you see Christ as your greatest treasure? Are you saved by faith alone? Don't leave here today without answering that question. Everyone must answer that question, and it's better to answer it now than when you meet God. Do you see him greatest when you're suffering? Do you find him when life's hardest things may arise? Or do you get mad at him? Do you not see that God is working in those situations? Finally, are you longing for the resurrection? Paul longed for the resurrection. Are you? Where are you at today? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I'm just so thankful for your word. 
God, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to preach your word this morning. God, if there is anyone here that does not know you, God, please call them to yourself. Save them, change them, allow them to repent of their sins and believe and trust in Christ alone for salvation. God, thank you for your grace that you have offered me and the rest of the believers here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is Pastor John. Thank you so much for listening to the Everyday Church Podcast. For more information on us or if you happen to make a spiritual decision during this message, please let us know and go to our website, www.everyday.church. There's an email link that you can click on and we would love to hear from you. If there's anything going on that has happened during this message, if the Lord has spoken to you or you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Also, if there's a prayer request or concern, then you can email us and we would love to take the time to pray for you and respond in any way that we can. Again, thank you so much for listening. God bless.